All right, well, let me invite you to grab your Bibles and find your way to Matthew chapter 18. As I have the privilege of leading us through our study this evening. And find your way to Matthew chapter 18, and when you get there, put your finger on verse 21. That's where we're going to be diving in here in a, here in a few moments now. Uh, we, we've made a lot of advancements in technology in a lot of ways over the past couple of decades, and perhaps one of the ways that's kind of stuck out to me recently is how much advancement we've made in the, in the area of vending machines. Uh, vending machines are pretty impressive nowadays. Like, uh, you can use your credit card. That's pretty awesome. Uh, you can brew a latte at a vending machine. That's pretty incredible. It seems like some can even toss a salad for you if that's you prefer. I mean, they, they can do all kinds of things. Now, when I was younger, that wasn't the case. Vending machines, vending machines weren't that advanced. You couldn't use your credit card. Instead, you had to kind of dig into your couch cushions for quarters and change to use to insert into a vending machine to get whatever soda or whatever treat you were going after. And the options were fairly limited. You didn't have all the options that you have nowadays when it comes to that type of convenience. And when I was younger, a lot of these vending machines didn't work very well. So oftentimes, you would take a quarter and you would slide it into the slot. And oftentimes, those coins wouldn't drop all the way down to where they belong. And so they would kind of get lodged in between the, where you put it in and where it's supposed to go. It just kind of gets stuck. And once it got stuck, there was not much you could do to get it to uh, give you what you need and to provide you with that soda or with that treat. And so you kind of got to get aggressive. And so you begin to kick the machine, you shake the machine, you make sure nobody's looking, and you kick the machine and you shake the machine. And, and your whole effort in that moment is to get the coin to drop. Because in order for you to get out what you need or what you want in that moment, that coin must drop. Now, I share with you that this, this afternoon because there's a real sense in which as you and I seek to live gospel-saturated lives and we take the gospel in every week. And as we take some time to think the gospel through, there's a temptation and a tendency for the gospel to kind of get lodged to kind of get stuck between our heads and our hearts and just kind of get lodged there so that the gospel isn't, perhaps we're not getting out the fruit that God intends for the gospel to produce when he's deposited into our lives. And in those moments when the gospel just kind of gets stuck between your head and your heart in the sense that you know uh, perhaps the truth of the gospel, you know sort of the implications and the applications of the gospel, there seems to be a disconnect between how the gospel is being turned out in practical and relevant ways. And in those moments when the gospel just kind of gets stuck, we, we have to be willing to come to the scriptures and to humbly put ourselves before them and allow the Holy Spirit to step into our lives and shake us up. Allow the Holy Spirit to apply some pressure to our lives by shaking us a little bit so that the gospel might drop all the way down and the gospel may begin to produce the type of fruit that God intends for his gospel to produce. And perhaps no other area of our lives when it comes to living gospel-saturated lives and pursuing gospel-saturated relationships, perhaps there's no area in our lives more in need of a shake-up than as it relates to what we're talking about this afternoon. Because today, if we're going to see lives flourish in gospel-saturated relationships, then we have to make room for the practical outworking of forgiveness in our lives. And I believe that this is one area in discipleship where there is the biggest disconnect between the head and the heart. Too many followers of Jesus are perfectly content in talking about how they've been forgiven so much by God in the gospel. 
and we're comfortable talking about being forgiven, but we're not as comfortable talking about extending forgiveness and actually letting the gospel flesh itself out in some of the most personal ways imaginable. Forgiveness is a difficult theme. It is a hard topic to explore because it is so intensely personal. It is personal because you need forgiveness. And it is personal because you are called by Jesus to extend forgiveness. And what we're going to see in the passage that we're going to look at over these next few moments is that God's standards and his expectations for our willingness to forgive one another, they're high. They're very high. In fact, Jesus begins to talk about how high those standards and expectations are in a conversation he had one day with the apostle Peter. You check out verse 21, and we're told that Peter approached Jesus, and he asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? As many as seven times? He's wanting Jesus to kind of quantify the number of times he's expected to forgive someone who offends him, who hurts him, who harms him, who sins against him. How many times must I do that? Now, the way Peter asks the question is commendable. He says, how many times should I forgive my brother or my sister who sends me? Should I do it seven times? And now, that's a commendable question because Peter lives in a day and age where the expectation of extending forgiveness wasn't that high. In fact, rabbis in the first century, they had a much lower bar and a much uh, a lower quota for how many times we should be expected to forgive someone who hurts us or harms us or sins against us. There was a rabbinic saying that says that if a man commits a transgression, the first, second, and third time he is forgiven. The fourth time he is not forgiven. They kind of set the paradigm for baseball. Three strikes, you're out. You sin three times, you're, you're done. That, that fourth time, there is no more forgiveness. That's, that's as far as the scope of forgiveness goes. And so for Peter to step into this conversation with Jesus and to say, should I forgive seven times? That tells us that Jesus is starting to rub off on Peter. He's starting to understand a little bit about the gospel and a little bit about the ways of Jesus so that when he approaches Jesus with this question, he assumes that the rabbinical standard is too low. And so he raises the bar to seven times and thinking that might be commended by Jesus and it also might help him uh, be better uh, equipped to follow Jesus, so should it be seven times? But notice how Jesus responds, as commendable of a question it is coming from Peter in this moment. Jesus doesn't want Peter to, he doesn't want Peter's heart to slide where our hearts are so tempted to slide when it comes to these matters. We are so tempted to limit the number of times that we want, are willing to forgive another person. We're so tempted to place parameters and quotas on what should be expected of us but notice how Jesus responds he responds in a way that says don't do that he responds in a way that kind of blows the lid off our quotas and it blows the lid off our limitations notice what he says he says I tell you not not as many as seven Jesus replied but 70 times seven some translations may say 77 times or something along those lines, but however it comes out, it's really kind of a euphemistic way of Jesus saying there's no limit to the number of times you should forgive another person. That when it comes to the scope of forgiveness, the scope of forgiveness says that there is no limit to the breadth of forgiveness, how wide forgiveness should run or how far should forgiveness should run into the future, there's no limit to it. 
that as a follower of Jesus, we are forgiven people who forgive people, and we forgive people time and time and time and time and time again. We don't put a limit to the number of times we should be willing to forgive another person. And so Jesus kind of responds with that standard. He responds with that dynamic. But then in verse 23, he shifts gears into a parable. And he begins to tell a story illustrating aspects of his kingdom. And one of the remarkable things about Jesus' parables is that they usually, or they're always kind of tied to his kingdom. They're designed to communicate what life looks like when Jesus gets his way. And the reality is, if Jesus is really getting his way in your heart, in your life, you will be a forgiving person. You will be willing to forgive people in, in numerously, as many times as needed, as many times as required, as many times as possible. That's what happens when Jesus gets his way. There's no limit to the breadth of forgiveness, but then you listen to what Jesus says next. He says in verse 23, for this reason, the kingdom of heaven can be compared to a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And when he began to settle accounts, get this, there was a servant, there was one who owed 10,000 talents. This person was brought before him. Now, 10,000 talents, that's a big deal. You see, one talent represented basically one year's salary for an ordinary worker in the first century. So for somebody to be in debt, 10,000 talents was was somebody being in debt 10,000 years worth of wages. It is an enormous sum. It is a deep debt. Now, when you think about how Jesus is setting up this parable, how this is someone that's uh, in service to a king and he's indebted to the king because of this amount of money, we're not talking about a servant or a person who's kind of on the bottom rung of the social ladder. We're talking about someone who's perhaps high up in the kingdom. They've been entrusted to oversee a certain region or a certain area. They have a lot of responsibility in the kingdom, so much so that they they could commit an offense that would bring this type of jeopardy about. So for this one servant to be indebted, 10,000 talents means that this person has done something to jeopardize the entire kingdom. He's done something that's going to harm the citizens of that kingdom, that's going to prohibit them from flourishing under the reign and the rule of their king. This guy, in other words, has screwed up royally. So when it comes to the scope of forgiveness, we're going to say that there's no limit to the breadth of our forgiveness but at the same time we have to say that there's no bottom to the depth of our forgiveness that there's no sin there's no offense there's no harm there's no hurt that's so egregious that it cannot be forgiven Uh, uh, an egregious offense that is so deep that that we should be unwilling to forgive, saying there's, that's just too far, that's just too deep, that's just too dark, that's just too bad. Essentially what Jesus is saying here is that there's no bottom to the depth of our forgiveness. And I know this is challenging, I know this is grating against some of your hearts because we want to put limits, we want to put qualifiers, we want to put justifications to keep us from having to do so much by way of our interpersonal relationships with other people. We want to know a number, I'm going to forgive 10 times but no more. We want to know kind of a classified breakdown of the types of offenses that can be forgiven and the types of offenses that shouldn't be forgiven. Surely things like rape and abuse and murder, surely those things are 
are too deep. Surely those things are too dark. Surely those things are too bad to warrant our forgiveness. But here Jesus is prepping us with this parable to remind us that there really is no bottom to the depth of our forgiveness. There's no place we're unwilling to go by way of forgiving another person whether they've sinned egregiously against us or even harder, even if they've sinned egregiously against someone we love. This is a high standard. It's not an easy standard. It's a high standard. So when you look at verse 25, it makes sense that this guy did not have the money to pay it back. He was in such deep debt that there was no hope for him. There was no way out for him. He he was in deep debt, and it says that his master commanded that he and his wife, his children, and everything he had to be sold to pay the debt. So he, the master took everything from this guy. And the consequences spilled over into his family and into others around him. And, and every, he was, everything he had was sold to help pay this debt that could not ultimately be paid. But then notice how the servant responds in verse 26. At this, the servant fell face down before him and said, don't you love this prayer? He falls face down before the king and says, be patient with me and I will pay you everything. He's pleading for mercy. He's pleading for patience. And then notice how the master responds in verse 27. It says, then the master of that servant had compassion, released him and forgave him the loan. Now the reason this standard of forgiveness is so important the scope being no limit to the number of times we're willing to forgive and no depth too low for us to go in our Forgiveness. The reason why this is so important because this approach to forgiveness reflects what the king has done for us. That it reflects the type of forgiveness God has given his children, that God has given those who are citizens in his kingdom. I'll give you a couple of examples. When you look at Psalm 103 verse 12, we are told that as far as the east is from the west, so far has God removed our transgressions from us. He's forgiven us. Micah 7, verse 19, God will again have compassion on us. He will vanquish our iniquities. He will cast out all our sins into the depths of the sea, that our God is a forgiving God. And it is good news for a guy like me to know that my God hasn't stopped forgiving me, that my God has, hasn't put a limitation to the number of times he's willing to forgive me on a, over the course of my lifetime. And it's encouraging to know that My God is faithful to forgive me even in my worst moments, my darkest moments, my most difficult moments. My God is willing to forgive me. And so essentially what Jesus is calling us to in this text, this unlimited scope of forgiveness, he's saying, look, I want you to live and relate to each other in such a way that reflects how I've related to you. I want you to showcase my glory, my beauty, my goodness, and how you're willing to forgive each other. And when you step into that type of community and that type of church, all of a sudden you become a new society. You become a new culture, able to tell an alternative narrative to the watching world, to tell the story of grace and mercy and forgiveness that can change the world, that can shape the course of history. This type of forgiveness can affect everything. So you consider what Jesus is saying here. And notice again how the master responds in verse 27. It says that the master of that servant had compassion, released him, and forgave him the loan. When we looked at how the master responded in that moment, we learned something about the character of forgiveness, the nature of forgiveness. And there's a few things I would just give to you as you think about kind of what forgiveness is like and what it's about. And I would say first that forgiveness is compassionate. 
Anytime you forgive another human being, you are exercising compassion. You are taking pity on someone who's offended you, who's hurt you, who's sinned against you. Now, compassion isn't usually our first reaction to an offense. Usually what happens when somebody sins against us or they do something wrong to us, we don't respond immediately with compassion. Instead, what we do is we begin to look at them and, we begin to, and it begins to affect how we view them. Meaning we begin to look at the person, all we can see and all we can really talk about as it relates to that person is the offense. And so their one particular sin or their one offense against us begins to grow and it becomes exaggerated so much that everything else about them is reduced. And we only know them by way of their sin or by way of their offense. In other words, we create a caricature out of them. No doubt you've seen a caricature artist draw these, these portraits and these pictures and and it's one that I'm not, I'm not a big fan of caricature uh, photos because essentially what those artists do is they, they look at a person and they take a feature of that person's face and usually it's considered a flaw of some sort and they take that feature and they zero in on it and they exaggerate it. And they draw this picture so that whenever you look at the, the portrait, all you see is that one feature. Well, essentially, that's what we do when somebody sins against us or offends us. And one of the reasons we don't respond with compassion is because we're treating that person like a caricature. We're emphasizing the offense. We're exaggerating the offense to the point that that's the only thing we think about. That's the only thing we see. And all of a sudden, when we look at them, we don't see a fellow human being. We see someone defined by their offense, defined by their sin. If you want to cultivate a compassionate disposition towards people who sin against you and offend you, in order to do that, you have to cultivate the type of perspective that says, I'm going to emphasize not what, what, what separates us, I'm going to emphasize that what, what brings us together. In other words, compassion grows out of our sense of sameness and identification with another human. So that when you look at another person, you see them. Yes, you are someone like me created in the image of God. When you look at another person who has offended you, you see them. Yes, you were a person who's a sinner just like me. And I'm not above you in the sense that I'm not capable of sinning against other people and mistreating other people and abusing other people or misusing other people. I'm not beyond that temptation. I can do that. I have done that. So when I look at you, I'm not going to look at what separates us. I'm going to try to see what contributes to our sameness. And when you begin to identify what you share in common with other human beings, that's when compassion begins to swell up. That's when compassion begins to grow in your life. And you're more willing to take pity on someone who has offended you. Now, it's interesting when you think about the gospel. The one word in the gospels that's used to describe Jesus' response to people more than any other adjective, any other word in the gospels is this word of compassion. Where did this compassion grow? Where did this compassion come from? Well, you think about what happened when God took on flesh and he dwelt among us and he began to live his life in our shoes, experiencing the human condition. We're told in Hebrews chapter 2 that his experience of the human condition, his identification with people, with human beings like us, that affected uh, the, his heart in some significant ways. Check it out. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 18, referring to Jesus 
It says that Jesus had to be like his brothers and sisters. He had to become like us in every way so that he could become what? A merciful and faithful high priest in matters pertaining to God to make atonement for the sins of the people for since he himself has suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. In other words, Jesus' compassion kind of grows out of his identification with the human condition. He knows what it means to be tempted. He knows what it means to be weak. He knows what it means to be human. And that sameness constituted the compassionate care he was so willing and eager to give to people like you and I. So if you want to cultivate compassion and this move towards forgiveness, you have to accentuate that which you share in common with the people who, with the person on the other side of the equation. Now, we've got to be careful to be sure that to say that Jesus identified with us in every way, this means that he identified with us in our weakness and in our ability to be tempted. Jesus did not identify with our propensity to sin. He wasn't a sinner like you and I. He was faithful in the face of temptation, whereas you and I have not been faithful in the face of temptation. But he knows what it's like to be tempted. He knows what it's like to have the gravitational pull of temptation kind of tugging at him. And he resisted it. But since he's aware of how strong that pull is for human beings, he can sympathize with us. He can show us compassion. He can take pity on us. And if you are going to look towards your offender with compassion... You too have to consider that which you share in common. And for you, that means remembering that you, like them, they, like you, have been created in the image of God. And remembering that they, like you, are weak and sinful human beings. And all of us need God's grace. All of us needs God's mercy. All of us needs the compassionate care of Jesus. So you have this move of compassion in the king's heart and in the king's response But not only is forgiveness compassionate here, forgiveness is a choice. Look at what he does. It says after he had compassion, it says he released him. He chose not to take him to court or take him to the mat. He he released him in that moment. And we should think about and consider how forgiveness ultimately is always a choice. It's a choice we make in response to an offense. It's the choice we make in response to being sinned against where we choose to cancel the debt that is owed us because of their sin. So he's making a choice here. And it's a remarkable choice, but understand this. It is a costly choice. It is a hard choice. I mean, you consider what he says next. Not only is it a choice, he says Not only did he release him, it says that he forgave him the loan. This means it was a costly choice because he's still out 10,000 talents. The kingdom is still in jeopardy. Who's going to be responsible for the debt? Who's going to pay him back? Well, it's not going to be the servant. The servant isn't going to pay him back. The king has released him. He's forgiven him of his loan. That was a costly choice where the king is deciding, I'm going to take the hit of this guy's offense. I'm going to absorb the the pain and the turmoil and the struggle of this guy's offense and of this guy's sin. Essentially, that's what we do every time we forgive another human being. When somebody sins against you, they create a debt with you. They rob you of your dignity. They rob you of your respect. They rob you of your joy. They rob you of your security. They rob you of your mental well-being. When you are sinned against, you are robbed. You are cheated. 
And when you are robbed and cheated in those types of ways, when somebody sins against you, you can do one of two things. You can respond in that moment insisting that they pay you back, that they pay the debt that is owed you. And the way you can kind of cash in on that is by refraining relationship from that person. The way you might make them pay you back is by withholding relationship or slandering their reputation or quietly thinking in your mind about the pain you hope they experience, that it would be on a similar level as yours. And you can start slandering them in your social circle so they may be carved out of the community. You can start talking bad about them to other people or just harboring those types of thoughts in your minds, hoping that over the course of time, you will do that enough or you'll be able to treat them that way that they'll be paying you back and covering the debt that they owe you. That's one route you can go. But if you do, if that's the route you take, understand that as long as you are responding in that way, insisting that they pay you back for the offense they've committed against you, the only one who's really gonna be harmed in that situation is you. It's your heart that's going to become hardened. It's your heart that's going to become calloused. It's your personality that's going to become jaded. It's your life that's going to become bitter and resentful and angry. The one who's going to suffer in that occasion most is you. And so one of the reasons God calls us to forgive one another is, yes, it heals the relationship and it reflects what God has done for us, but it's also because God knows what's best for us. And when we are canceling debts and we're releasing people from what they owe us because they've offended us, when we do that, it liberates our heart and it puts us on a healthier way of living and things begin to change in us so that we begin to look a lot more like Jesus. And so when we are sinned against, we can try to make them pay and grow hard, grow calloused, reduce Christ's likeness in us, or we can make the costly choice to forgive them. And we can refuse to make them pay their debt, but if you make that choice, it's going to cost you. You're going to have to absorb the pain of that moment. You're going to have to absorb the offense that was waged against you and you're going to do that every time you choose to treat that other person with kindness you're going to be doing that every time you bite your tongue when you're tempted to slander them or talk bad about them behind their back you begin to make that payment yourself and that's going to require you on many levels to die you can't forgive another person without in some way dying to yourself but the way of the gospel is that as you make those payments for them and as you die to yourself to extend forgiveness to somebody who's offended you, who's indebted to you, understand that that death always leads to resurrection, that that death leads to life. You know this to be true because you know the gospel that when Jesus died on the cross, he did not die on the cross because he in some way was indebted to the Father. He did not die on the cross because he had sinned against the Father. No, he went to the cross to pay the debt our sin created, our uh, rebellion created. He went to the cross to cover that debt. Essentially, Jesus went to the cross to say, look, I'm not going to make them pay for their sin. I'm going to pay the penalty for them. 
And so Jesus would absorb the punishment our sin required when he dies on the cross. This is why time and time and time again, as you read through the Gospels, you hear sin talked about in these terms, debt and payment, debt and payment. It's all flowing from this dynamic of who God is and how God has made us and how forgiveness happens. You see, Jesus knows that forgiveness is never free. You never freely forgive someone. Every time you forgive someone, a payment is being made and you are choosing to make the payment for them. And ultimately, that's what Jesus has chosen to do for us in the gospel. And so when we make that choice, that costly choice, yes, it's gonna hurt. Yes, we're gonna suffer in varying degrees as we do so. But that pain and that suffering will ultimately lead to freedom and life. There's a guy by the name of Dan Hamilton who wrote a book on forgiveness and he wrote, he kind of describes how this process played out in his own life in relationship with a woman who he thought he was going to marry but then the relationship soured and they had to work through forgiving each other because of how things went down. And, and I want you to hear how he described it. I've shared this with some of you before but I think it's worth repeating. So he describes the process, process of forgiveness saying, once upon a time I was engaged to a young woman who changed her mind. I forgave her, but only in small sums over a year. They were made whenever I spoke to her and refrained from rehashing the past. Whenever I renounced jealousy and self-pity, whenever I saw her with another man, whenever I praised her to others, when I wanted to slice away her reputation. Those were the payments. But she never saw them. She wasn't aware of all these payments that were being made, and her own payments were unseen by me, but I do know that she forgave me. He says, forgiveness is more than a matter of refusing to hate someone. It's more than a matter than refusing to hate, to hate someone. It is also a matter of choosing to demonstrate love and acceptance to the offender. He said, pain is the consequence of sin. There is no easy way to deal with it. Wood, nails, and pain are the currency of forgiveness, the love that heals. You can't forgive apart from sacrifice, apart from death, apart from making payments. There's no such thing as free forgiveness. The cross of Christ tells us that. And there's no such thing as free forgiveness in your relationships with other people. The cross of Christ tells us that. And so when we forgive another person, we're choosing compassion in that moment and we're choosing to pay the price for their sin. We're gonna take the hit. We're not gonna seek vengeance. We're not gonna seek justice outside of the regular rhythms of the law. We're not gonna go that route. We're gonna take the hit. We're gonna absorb it by and become forgiving people just as Jesus absorbed and took in our offenses on the cross. So you consider this. This is what the king and the master is trying to do for this servant in verse 27. But then in verse 28, the parable takes a shocking turn, a surprising turn, like most of Jesus' parables tend to do. Listen to where the story goes. The servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. Now, that does not compare to 10,000 talents. 100 denarii that he is owed by somebody else. That's about 100 days worth of work. It's substantial, but it's incomparable to the debt he owed his master. 
And so he sees this, he, he's owed this, and he goes to this servant, and look what he does. He says that he grabbed him, and he goes MMA on him. He starts to choke him. He puts his hand around his neck like Homer and Bart Simpson and just begins to squeeze until his eyes are bulging out, choking this man and saying, pay what you owe. He's insisting upon the other person making the payment. And at this, his fellow servant fell down and began begging him and noticed the prayer. It's the same prayer he himself prayed earlier. Be patient with me and I will pay you back. But we are told he wasn't willing in verse 30. He wasn't willing to forgive. He wasn't willing to treat this servant as he himself had been treated. And so instead, he went and he threw this man in prison until he could pay what was owed. And when the other servants saw what had taken place, they were deeply distressed and went and reported to their master everything that had happened. Then after he had summoned him, his master said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Shouldn't you also have had mercy on your fellow servant? As I had mercy on you? And because he was angry, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he could pay everything that was owed. So also, Jesus says, my heavenly father will do to you unless every one of you forgives his brother or sister from your heart. So this servant is unwilling to forgive And the king essentially puts that servant in prison to be tortured. Now, there's a lot that could be said about that. But one of the things I really want to accentuate this evening is that any time you are unwilling to forgive another human being, someone who's coming to you asking to be forgiven, they're repenting and seeking your forgiveness, any time you refuse to extend that and give that, you're essentially resigning yourself to a life of bondage. You are putting yourself in prison where you will be tortured. You will be tormented. You're going to be tortured and tormented by the amount of bitterness that's going to swell up in you. You're going to be tortured and tormented by the amount of resentment that's going to swell up inside of you. You're going to be tortured and tormented by the anger that's going to swell up inside of you. It's not going to go well for you if you refrain from treating people the way God in Christ has treated you. That anytime we withhold forgiveness from somebody seeking it from us, anytime we do that, we are moving towards bondage. We're not living towards freedom. This is a huge problem, and I think this is why Paul would say so much, and the writers of the New Testament would warn us so well about moving in this direction. He knows how our refusal to forgive someone can create the bondage of bitterness and resentment and anger in our lives, and he doesn't want that to happen. This is why he says what he says in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 16, verse 15, sorry. He warns the church. He says, make sure that no one falls short of the grace of God and that no root of bitterness springs up, causing trouble and defiling many. He's warning against the root of bitterness being planted into the heart, in the heart of believers and spreading and growing. He knows how that won't contribute to gospel-saturated relationships that are flourishing. Instead, that's just going to cause floundering in relationships and struggle in relationships. It's not going to go well for the family of faith if this bitterness is growing amongst the people. But then there's another warning in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30, 
where Paul says, and don't grieve God's Holy Spirit. You were sealed by him for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, anger, and wrath, shouting and slander be removed from you along with all malice. And be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving one another just as God also forgave you in Christ. He's saying move in this direction so that you don't live a, bond, a life of bondage. Press into the freedom that forgiveness can bring to you and the freedom that forgiveness can bring to those around you. You know, it's been, bitterness has been described as something like you taking a glass of poison and drinking it and waiting for the other person to die. It's useless, right? It doesn't, it's not productive. It's not good for your heart when you're unwilling to forgive. And notice what he says in Ephesians 4. He actually ties our willingness to forgive one another with grieving God's Holy Spirit. Perhaps one of the reasons why intimacy is lacking in your relationship with Jesus. And perhaps one of the reasons, perhaps, influence isn't growing in and through your life and ministry and, and you're not moving in a productive, fruitful direction. Perhaps it's because you were grieving God's Holy Spirit by refusing to extend the forgiveness you yourself have received in the gospel. There's a connection between grieving God's spirit and bitterness, anger, and resentment in our life. There's a connection between grieving God's Holy Spirit and you and I refusing to forgive one another, but insisting that everybody pay the debt they owe us in our relationships. And so Paul's warning the church there, and Jesus is warning us here in Matthew 18, saying, look, being, being, your unwillingness to forgive is going to live lead to bondage, yes, in this life. And if you trace the logic of this text to its end, it's gonna lead to bondage in the next life. Because if you were stubborn in your resolve, refusing to forgive those who've harmed you in a limitless fashion, if you were stubborn and resolute in not extending the grace God has given to you, then chances are the gospel has not dropped into your heart. And you're walking through this world with an awareness of what the gospel is. And you've kind of put it into your mind. And you might even agree that the gospel is true. But you're not allowing the gospel to drop from your head to your heart. Producing the fruit that the gospel desires to produce within you. And if that is the case, then the question is where, where do we go and how do we get there? How do we move in that direction? Well, I'd give you three things to consider, and this is a huge topic and a lot could be said about it, but just three thoughts about how to start moving towards becoming a forgiven person who is forgiving people. And the first thought is this, you need to know your place. If you look back at the parable, it's really interesting as this servant who's been forgiven by his master is now choking someone who's indebted to him because he's angry, he's bitter, he's fearful, he's choking this guy out. Essentially what this guy has done is he's forgotten who he is. He doesn't know his place. He's a servant taking the place of the king. He's issuing a verdict in that relationship and that verdict isn't his to give. And when it comes to you and I interacting with other people, understand that we are not in a position and we do not hold the place in this world to give verdicts to those who offend us. This is why in Romans chapter 12, we are told vengeance belongs to the Lord. God alone is judge. We leave everything up to him. It is not your place to issue verdicts in your relationship. It is not your place to condemn someone who's offended you. Even if they've offended you egregiously, that's not your role. 
you were a servant, don't act like the king. And every time we refuse to forgive and we want people to pay us back for their offenses, we're not knowing our place. So this starts with humility. It starts with you knowing your place in this world. But not only does it start with knowing your place, and you might say that and agree with that, but there's still more needed. We have to start asking for help. Because you might say, well, okay, I'm, I'm not gonna issue verdicts. I'm not gonna condemn those who've sinned against me. I'm not gonna move in that direction. I'm gonna, that's not my place. That's God's place. But, but I still need help in, in practically working out compassion and, and making the choice to forgive and paying the debt for those that I am forgiving. And so what do you do in that moment? You start asking God to help you over and over and over again. Now, to see this, you don't really see it in Matthew chapter 18, but you see it in a parallel passage in the book of Luke. So I'll show it up on the screen. Luke chapter 17. There's another conversation where Jesus is having with his disciples about this issue of forgiveness. And listen to how the conversation goes. Jesus says to them, be on your guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times a day and comes back to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. Now, the disciples are hearing this, and they're thinking, that's still too much. That's more than I can handle. Do you, that doesn't seem, uh, we live in an eye-for-an-eye, tooth-for-a-tooth society, and you want me to respond in these kinds of ways more than I've been taught, more than I've been trained. How am I going to do this? And you know this is going down because the apostles' response is, Lord, would you increase our faith? They're saying, that standard's too high. I need your help. Increase my faith. Help me to trust that you, God, are the God who will right every wrong. Help me to trust that you, God, are the God who will vindicate every sin committed against him and every sin committed against God's people. Increase my faith to trust in your goodness and to trust that the way of forgiveness is the way to go, that forgiveness is freedom and a refusing to forgive is bondage. Help me to see that. Help me to believe that. So they're asking for help, and if you're struggling today with these, with these thoughts, and you know deep down in your heart that you're withholding forgiveness from somebody who's offended you egregiously, take some time and pray. Ask God to help. Ask God to increase your faith, to believe that his way is the best way that leads to your flourishing, your freedom. And so you begin to ask for help. Listen to what Jesus says next in response. He says, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, the Lord said, you can say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea and it will obey you. Now, I've never heard that. I didn't realize until studying this passage this past week the connection between Jesus' statement there and his call for us to forgive. Normally when you hear that saying of Jesus, well, if you have the faith the size of a mustard seed, then you can move mountains. You can see trees uprooted and planted in the sea. Oftentimes I hear that and I think, okay, that means I'm gonna see the supernatural in my life. I'm gonna see God do things that, that are unbelievable, that are mind-blowing. But do you see the connection between that movement of God and the call to forgiveness? He's saying that the most supernatural work that can take place in your life is your ability to forgive someone who sinned against you. So you ask for help, and your faith may only be the size of a mustard seed. Now, when Jesus says that, he's not saying this is the type of faith that is impressive because it's so big. Mustard seed faith is really small. 
Because the point isn't the size of the faith. The point is where that faith is placed. And so whether you're coming to Jesus asking for help in a moment of weakness or coming to Jesus asking for help in a moment where you feel kind of strong and and supported in your decision, if you come to Jesus, no matter where you feel strong or weak, you come to Jesus, you ask him for help. And in this instance, Jesus says, crazy things can happen. The roots of bitterness can be dug out of your heart. The roots of resentment and anger can be dug out of your heart and cast into the sea. That's supernatural activity. That's miraculous manifestations of the Holy Spirit's presence and power in our lives. When we become a people willing and eager to forgive one another that's when you're going to see the miraculous. That's when lives are going to flourish. That's when freedom is going to be found. So we come to Jesus knowing our place and asking for help. And as we're doing that, we're going to let the gospel drop. As we're doing that, the gospel is going to drop deep into our hearts And it's going to uproot any root of bitterness and anger and resentment. And it's going to replace that with the tree of life. It's going to replace that with the fruit of the Holy Spirit. The gospel is going to drop and it's going to do the things that God designed the gospel to do in our lives. You see, essentially what we're getting after here is, is that an unforgiving heart is an unforgiven heart. But if you're really believing that you yourself have been significantly forgiven by God and you allow that reality to drop into your soul, to drop into your heart and you consciously consider your sins and what Jesus paid for your sins, that's when the gospel's going to drop and the gospel's going to start producing the fruit of forgiveness in your life so that you find freedom in your relationship with your God and you find freedom to forgive those who've offended you and sinned against you. You know, there's a moment at the end of Jesus' life and ministry where he's dying on the cross and just before he breathes his last breath, it says that he took a deep breath and he cried out these words, it is finished. Now that phrase, it is finished, can literally be translated, it is paid. That when Jesus died on the cross, he died on the cross to pay your debt. He died on the cross to pay my debt. And when that reality is dropping into our souls, when we're being honest about that, we're being open about that, we're being conscious of the fact that we are forgiven sinners, that's when we're going to start forgiving sinners. That's when we're going to start forgiving one another in a limitless capacity. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as as our hearts are wrestling with this passage and as our hearts are wrestling with this reality, I pray that your Holy Spirit would cause the gospel to drop. And I pray that your gospel would root out any bitterness, any resentment, any unbelief that may be swelling up in this moment that says, I'm gonna resist what Jesus says in this passage, and I'm gonna resist this call to forgive those who have offended me. I pray that your grace would overcome that, that you would trump that, and that the gospel would drop. God, I pray that you would heal our hearts, that you would heal our lives, that you would heal our relationships. 
I pray that you would bring freedom and flourishing to our community, freedom and flourishing to our city, freedom and flourishing to our world. And I pray that it would start with your people living lives as forgiven sinners, willing to forgive sinners. God, we love you and we ask for your help in this moment in Jesus' name. Amen.